0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Isaiah chapter 34 is our text this morning. And uh, we we actually didn't even get to the text last Sunday. Uh, we, we laid out in sort of um, summary fashion in a kind of systematic way uh, eight interpretive principles so that you and I might benefit profit from our study of um, not just Isaiah, but all the prophets we said that God's prophetic messengers had a truly monumental task that they were faced with, and that was to, um, at the same time, on the one hand, convince hard-hearted unbelievers that God would indeed judge and discipline them for their sin, but also, on the other hand, they had to, at the same time, convince the faint-hearted believers that God would save them, God would restore them, that God would make good on every promise, uh, and that he was faithful to the covenant. And to be able to do that, we said they had to pull a whole range of rhetorical tools off their prophetic uh, shelf in their prophetic workshop to get the job done. Things like announcements of judgment or oracles of salvation. And as we see in Daniel and and some uh, uh, portions of Revelation, uh, apocalyptic styles of communication. And we said the consequence of the prophets putting all these rhetorical tools to work is that uh, the prophets as a whole are, are affective. In other words, they, uh, they, they intentionally appeal to our emotions, and that appeal to our, our emotion is meant to shape our values, what we hold as right and wrong, true and untrue, as, as, as valuable and invaluable. And there's also, then, as it shapes our values to uh, impact our will, our behavior, such that we live a transformed life. And we said the prophets, like a skillfully edited, edited film or an artfully crafted musical composition, they leave a, an indelible mark on our soul as we read through them. Um, and, 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 and as God's prophets paint pictures of his judgments and his saving works across the canvas of our minds, it leaves an, an impression that lasts way longer than, um, once they've, than once they've stopped speaking. Figures of speech, such as simile, metaphor, hyperbole, personification, irony, repetition, rhythm, parallelisms, uh, all of these tools are put to work as we read through the prophets, as we study them, as we, as we come to them. And the prophets had to do this. It was by necessity they used unique and powerful ways of speaking with the intention and the goal of transforming our thinking. But again, we said how we interpret those prophetic forms uh, of divine revelation must take their function into account. Otherwise, we'll, we'll walk away with the wrong understanding. We'll actually uh, maybe walk away uh, confused rather than, than having clarity. We said the common form, style, and subject matter of any, any medium – Dictates how it's interpreted. It's just that's, we just take that as self-evident. Um, whether you're looking at an advertisement, or reading an opinion piece, or hearing a news story, or or observing a political cartoon, uh, w- depending on what you're looking at, that's going to shape how you interpret that that um, thing, that that uh, medium, and how we understand it. And it's no different when we come to the prophets, unless we understand their unique characteristics. Um, then uh, we're likely to make major errors in our study and in our application of them. And so we laid out eight principles. Eight principles to profit from the prophets, making sure we don't gloss over them or get lost in the forest uh, looking at all the trees. Uh, the first principle, just by way of quick review, was to be sensitive to the richness of prophetic imagery. The prophets don't often give straightforward, analytical statements of salvation and judgment. Instead, they string together images one after another, as we move through the text, and weaving a literary tapestry that communicates a true, but we said a more holistic understanding of God's future plans. So, the prophets are literary in that sense. That is to say, they use a ton of figures of speech to draw us in, to, to compel our, our will, uh, and and when we get to experience God's truth in an, in an almost immersive way. We said they're like the IMAX 3D portions of divine revelation. Uh, secondly, we said that as we come to the prophets, we're not to look for something in the wo- prophetic word that it doesn't intend to disclose. That was kind of the second key principle. The prophets always have something important to communicate, because every word of God, uh, in the word of God, is God-breathed. Um, but oftentimes, we said it's more hope for the future than detailed information about the future. The prophets are intentionally vivid, uh, as, and, and they bring to us a literary kind of shock treatment with these bold, rich images. But the question is, why do they do that? Well, it's, it's to steal our attention away from life's trials. It's to get us to, to rise above the noise of everything that's happening in our lives so that we can actually set our gaze on things above and not below. So, there's an intentional um, uh, focus there that we, we need to understand. Third, we said we need to seek to understand the main points of the prophetic text. They are like impressionistic painters. Audra and I went to a doctor's appointment this week, and the office had all the impressionistic painters on the wall. It was I mean Van Gogh, Monet, Renoir, all of them were there. And I said, see? And she's like, Yes. I said, if you stand too close last week, if you stand too close to one of those painters' paintings and try to examine every detail of an artist's work in, 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 in the impressionistic school, you fail to grasp the, what the picture intends to present. The prophets are like those impressionistic painters. They, they give us a sense of the future. It is a true sense. Uh, it is a trustworthy sense. It is a literal sense, but it is uh, a sense nonetheless. So we need to In order to rightly divide the prophets, seek to understand the big picture, the meaning of the whole, rather than uh, getting uh, bogged down in the meaning of every little part. Fourth, we said we need to keep a number of options open for how prophetic predictions will be fulfilled. Church history is littered with overconfident and wrong predictions by God's people about the future, about who uh, was going to be the instrument that God's prophetic timeline Uh, Would would unfold. We said all we can be confident of today is what will happen, not who specifically will be doing it. Um, Whenever God's final chapter unfolds, um, God's kingdom plan is consummated. It will unfold quickly. We said decisively, and God will use whatever individuals and nations that are on the earth at that time to do what he has promised to do, which is to judge the wicked, to save a remnant of his chosen people. He promises to establish his kingdom and to raise the righteous in glory. So all of those things will come to pass. Exactly how and when those specific events will take place, we cannot be confident, at least from where we stand today. Fifth, we said read the prophets within their own context, historically speaking, which were often contexts of crisis, You read the prophets, they are communicating to people in despair. They are talking to people who are blinded by their sin, lost in their rebellion. And so men like Isaiah and Hosea and Daniel and and all the others sought to communicate heavenly encouragement to those who were losing hope. They, They were losing their grip on hope. And some needed to be jarred loose with a holy fear because God was about to break them. So we need to understand the, the context, historically speaking, in which the prophets are writing as much as we can. Sixth, we need to be content with some mystery. Uh, we don't like mystery. I, I found that, especially people who, who really value the, and lift high the word of God, we want to know everything about the word of God, and that's a good instinct that we have. Um, but there are things that are beyond our complete understanding in the scriptures. There's just realities we can't fully wrap our minds around. And we have to be content with that. There's an aesthetic beauty to the prophets that is meant to capture our affections. It's meant to inform our minds. Um, it, It is meant to move our wills to a greater knowledge of God. And so we need to know them. We need to study them. But if we flatten everything out and seek to solve for every mystery, we are, one, likely to say things that are at best untrue, and at worst, heretical, and secondly, it robs the prophets of a key element of their richness and power. We need to be, at times, more like children who wonder than engineers who are, uh, insist on disassembling this thing to figure out how it all works. And I think many of us are engineers, and so you understand that instinct to break it all and uh, see how it works. Sometimes we just need to watch the magic show and not wonder, how did the guy do it, right? That's the idea. Just be amazed, be captivated. You don't have to understand how the guy does it. Seven, seven, rather than prompting us to decipher a detailed chronology for the future, the prophets are really inviting us to a response in the present. Um, it's not that they don't have communicate, uh, things to communicate about the future, but, but they're also, we can't forget... Inviting a response in the present. They cause us to contemplate how great God is, to stand in awe of Him, to worship Him. They comfort those who are faithful, giving us hope. They brace our souls. They strengthen our resolve. They prompt us to be patient and to wait on the Lord. That is to say, the prophets are challenging us, we said, towards sanctified living, to live a sanctified life that is holy and set apart for the Lord. And lastly, I think even our scripture reading in Acts this morning reminds us of this. The prophets point to the greater and perfect son of David, in whom the promises of salvation will be fully realized. That was our eighth and final principle. The Old Testament is a record of God's covenant promises and how those promises, uh, how God was faithful to his, his covenant throughout, um, throughout that time period. And in the, in the Gospels, in the first coming of Jesus, salvation is made even more sure as he fulfills so many of the promises given to us in the prophets. The prophets point us to Messiah, and the gospel records confirm that their words are God's words. They confirm to us that God's kingdom program is very much still on track. We have nothing to fear. The prophets prompt us to faith in Christ. And that's what takes us to our text this morning, as we come to Isaiah chapter 34 and 35. The central theme of this entire section from 28 all the way to chapter 39 is this theme of faith toward God. God is is stirring up within us faith. God's people, are, are we see, are those who trust him and trusting in him, they demonstrate that trust in a life of obedience, a life of faithfulness to to um, To him, in every aspect of our being, and so we said these chapters confront us with a choice as we come to them as you read through them uh, there 's woes and promises, there's confrontation and comfort but the the question there's just two questions that they keep the text continually asks is will you build your life on God and his promises, or will you construct the life of your own design and rely on worldly strategies? and human policies. Will you live by faith or will you live by your works? I mean, that's the choice. There's only two options. And these chapters, we said, which deal with historical events in 36 to 39, are meant to be faith builders for us. They're meant to stir us up to love and good deeds in every generation. Isaiah is revealing to us something profound in these chapters, something substantial of God's character, and that is meant to evoke a present response, namely faith in God, faith in the Holy One of Israel. So chapters, we said 34 and 35, which almost function like an appendix. As you read, you know, 28 to 33 are kind of their own thing. 34 and 35 are like an addendum put and in that addendum, he puts before an ultimate woe, an ultimate word of warning, and an ultimate promise of divine restoration. They become, like we said, the the, the the final hammer strikes that drive the message into our souls. And the message is this, that trust in human power is foolishness, but our only and ultimate hope is to trust in the Lord as king. He speaks about final judgment in chapter 34, and ultimate salvation in chapter 35. And the text asks us, what do you want your internal inheritance to be? Do you want it to be divine devastation, or do you want it to be redeemed rejoicing? Will you be swept up in God's wrath against the nations, or will you delight yourself in in Zion's happy future? The The contrast between these chapters could not be more significant. It They are they are mirror images of one another, and they are worthy of our study. They are worthy of our application this morning. So we want to look at look at them into two parts. Our simple, simple outline in chapter 34, we see divine devastation. In chapter 35, we see redeemed rejoicing. So we begin in chapter 34 with what can only be described here as you read through it, and hopefully you are trying to maybe get a, at least a, su- a survey of the text before we come together on Sundays, we see a warning of divine devastation. There's a call uh, put out by God and through the mouth of Isaiah here in verse 1 to get our attention. Isaiah says, Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear and the world and all that spring from it. It springs from it. And it's important to understand here that as God calls the nations to hear him, that his first word, both here and elsewhere in the scriptures, his first word to the world is, is not a word of judgment. Okay? If you back up into chapter 33 and you look at verses 13 to 15, God's first word to the world is to remind them of his holy character and the standard of that character reflected in his law. If you look at chapter 33 and verses 13 to 15, he says, "'You who are far away, hear what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless.'" And then he says, "'Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning?' And then he tells us, he who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity, he who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe, he who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. Not only does God God remind us of his holiness and and in verse 15 describe what that holiness looks like as as his people follow his law, God also extends extends the message of salvation and forgiveness. you look down in verse 22 of verse chapter 33, it says, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Verse 24, the people who dwell there with God will be forgiven their iniquity. So God's first word to the world, this call to hear him, to listen to him, isn't in this section, judgment, it is this, I am holy and you are not, turn to me and live. I mean, that's the message as you come to the end of chapter 33. But the thing is, if that message of, of who God is and his law and, and the need for our forgiveness and cleansing in him, if that message is ignored or at worse is rejected, actively rejected, the message of pending judgment must be heard by the world also. And that's what you see as you come into chapter 34. In verse 2, he says, For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations, and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them, he has given them over to slaughter. Verse 8 For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. This is a warning. This warning of judgment and that we have to understand that this warning of judgment is an overflow of God's holiness. It's an overflow of his justice. All that God does is the overflow of who he is. All that God does is the overflow of who he is. God is holy, he is righteous, and he is just, and therefore he cannot simply turn a blind eye to sin. He cannot simply sweep it under the rug. He must repay accordingly. And so, as we come to chapter 34, we have to understand that divine devastation bursts forth out of who God is and his nature. Notice the the, the language that's used here. He speaks of the Lord's indignation against all the nations. Which speaks of sharp explosions of anger, his wrath, which is speaks of of abiding animosity toward their armies. And that indignation and wrath that God has, his his zeal for his own holiness, it leads to it says utter destruction and slaughter, verse eight. It leads to vengeance and it leads to a recompense, which are tempered, of course, by his righteousness. In other words, God is not neutral. He is not indifferent toward the world of sin and sinners. He stands in opposition to them. He stands against them. If that weren't the case, if God were not truly um, zealous for his holiness, then, then you and I would have no reason to be saved. We'd have nothing to fear. So we have to understand that God's not neutral. He's not indifferent toward a world of sin and sinners. And what we see here described is God's final judgment moving against heaven and earth. God's coming judgment breaking forth against nations, but also against individuals. We see his coming judgment even against the the created order, the cosmos itself, as you get into verses 3 and 4. And again, because the prophets just don't make straightforward statements like, God will seriously judge sin. They don't just say that. Isaiah strings together image after image, weaving this, this tapestry that depicts the horror of this divine devastation. He does that in verses 2 to 10. Notice how he says here, he has utterly destroyed His enemies, he has given them over to slaughter, verse 3. So their slain will be thrown out and their corpses will give off their stench and the mounds will be drenched with their blood and all the host of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom. And upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction, the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen will also fall with them, the young bulls with strong ones. Thus their land will be soaked with blood and their dust become greasy with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its its streams will be turned into pitch, its loose earth into brimstone, and its land will become burning pitch. And it will not be quenched night or day, and its smoke will go up forever. God hates sin. He hates sin and yes, he loves the sinner, but if the sinner continually slaps away God's gracious offers of mercy, God's gracious offers of forgiveness, eventually the distinction between sin and sinner breaks down. And all that remains is justice. And so that is what we see him describing here as his, as his grace and mercy and loving kindness draw to a close. All that's left is justice for a, a rebellious world. You might be asking yourself as you read through this, why does he single out Edom and why does he single out its capital city, Bozerah? It's interesting, Edom is both a specific focus of God's future judgment, but it's also representative of what God will do against and throughout the entire earth. It's very similar, like we said earlier in a previous message, how references to Jerusalem and to Zion is, it is both the focal point of God's future salvation, but it is also representative of what God will do throughout the entire earth. What he does there, he will do everywhere. And it's the same here. What, he, what God will do in judgment in Edom, in fact, you can read the book of Obadiah and it describes this, it is representative of what the day of the Lord will look like as it breaks forth across the whole earth. Edom, this kingdom that emerged out of Esau's descendants, had a long history of animosity toward God and toward his people. As you read through the Old Testament, Edom is refused. You'll remember maybe in, uh, in your reading through the, the uh, book of Numbers, Edom refused to let Israel pass when they wandered through the wilderness. Do you remember that? They asked for passage and God, uh, and, they, and they refused, causing them great difficulty having to go a different way. Uh, Saul is described as waging war against the enemies of Israel. And, of course, Edom is singled out as among those he fought against in 1 Samuel 14. Edom uh, was conquered by David, but then they rebelled against Solomon. You see that in 1 Kings chapter 11. And that conflict between Edom and Judah, Edom and Israel, continued for another 150 years. You read about it in 2 Kings 8. In 2 Kings, even 14, you see how that that conflict extended to multiple kings. And even after the time of Isaiah, when Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians, Psalm 137, which is an exile psalm, verse 7 tells us that Edom stood by while that unfolded and cheered, saying, raise it to the ground. The point is that Edom was the place of ceaseless hostility to the Lord's people. And so by describing its final overthrow here and its destruction, Isaiah is describing what the day of the Lord will unleash everywhere against all of God's enemies. God's holiness will be satisfied with a sacrifice. And that's why this image imagery is used. The the blood and the fat that is what God received in the sacrifices. This is God's payment that is due. His purposes according to election will stand. And so when, the, when divine devastation w- is unleashed in the future, we see as we come to the end of chapter 34 it, that it is comprehensive. And that is clear to us as you get to the final verses here. At the end of chapter, uh, uh, end of verse 10, he says, from generation to generation, It will be desolate. None will pass through it forever and ever, but pelican and hedgehog will possess it, and owl and raven will dwell in it, and he will stretch over it the line of desolation and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no king there whom they may proclaim king, and all its princes will be nothing. Thorns will come up in its fortified towers, nettles and thistles in its fortified cities. It will also be a haunt of jackals and an abode of ostriches. The desert creatures will meet with the wolves, The hairy goat will cry to its kind. Yes, the night monster will settle there and will find herself a resting place. The tree snake will make its nest and lay eggs there and it will hatch and gather them under its protection. Yes, the hawks will be there, everyone of its kind. The totality and the perpetuity of God's judgment is illustrated here. And it's illustrated by the disappearance of humanity and all the animals falling into their place because there's no people. The normal comings and goings of life, the unique responsibilities of life, like reigning and ruling, that all has ground will grind to a screeching halt. And in their place, wild animals and weeds take over. And he wants us to understand as we read this, that if this is God's work, this is God's work, he will stretch over it the line of desolation. He will stretch over it the plumb line of emptiness. Now, these two terms, desolation and emptiness, that you see here in the text, these terms are, are the same exact terms used by Moses in Genesis 1 and verse 2, the second verse of the Bible, to describe the universe before God's purposeful hand began forming the creation. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it says the earth was formless and void. Same terms. What what does that signify? He's pointing out that this is what sin does in the end. It, It brings everything in the world back to chaos, destruction, and meaninglessness. Isaiah is intentionally trying to showcase that God will give the corrupt world exactly what it has chosen. Sinners will reap what they have sown. You know, it's, it's an adage, right? Be careful what you wish for; you just might get it. And that's that's exactly what these verses are meant to are meant to point to point out to us. And it's worth reiterating the description of the land being laid waste here. That's very similar to the description of the the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a lot of overlay here, but again all these unclean animals moving in and settling down. Again, this doesn't give us detailed information about the future. There's nothing significant about the animals other than the fact that they're wild animals. Most of them are unclean animals under the Old Covenant. It's just trying to give us a holistic understanding of God's future plans. Just as God's judgment in the past against Sodom and Gomorrah was comprehensive and permanent, so God's future judgment of the world will be comprehensive and permanent. It will be so complete, it'll be so destructive that the animals will move in and the weeds will spring up because there won't be any human beings left to occupy it. And how can we know that for sure? How can we be confident that God will actually unleash his terrible swift sword? Verse 16, seek from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these will be missing, none will lack its mate, And here's how we know, for his mouth has commanded, his spirit has gathered them. He, God, has cast the lot for them and his hand has divided it to them by line. God's future judgment is certain because his word has commanded it, his power is going to implement it, and his hand will bring it to pass with a direct personal touch. This is not just the normal, sinful consequences uh, uh, of natural disasters in the world that we all experience and know now. This is God's cataclysmic, intentional judgment. Everything all the way down to the beasts and the birds are under his sovereign control here, and he is bringing them to the place of judgment. We might think to ourselves, well, how could this be? I mean, could God really do this? And and the answer is, yes, he can. These verses are meant to show us that our our view of sin is clouded. We just don't fully appreciate how much sin dishonors the Lord. This is Isaiah's prophetic picture of what Paul calls in Romans 1 and verse 18, God's wrath revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's what's going on here. And it's not unjust it is not unjust because the world, Romans 1 says, is without excuse. And it's not even disproportionate because humanity has exchanged, as Paul says, the infinite glory of the incorruptible God for what? He says for images resembling corruptible man. It is such an offense to the holiness and the glory of God that man would turn his back on on him in pursuit of his own in his own ways. It's not disproportionate at all. And so, and so what, what it provokes in God is a, is a divine devastation. But again, the divine devastation is not the last word, and that's what we need to understand this morning. Placed alongside this horrific, comprehensive judgment that we read about in chapter 34, in fact, because of it, there will be a redeemed rejoicing. And that's what we come to in the second part of our outline, in chapter thirty-five, verses one to ten, the entire chapter, the entire chapter, has Israel's exodus from Egypt. That whole event as the backdrop. I mean, if you read through the Exodus, in in in, um, in Exodus uh, one to fourteen, and how God took them out of the land of Egypt, you'll see there's such a there's such a um, intentional. Illusion and overlay here as we come to chapter 35. Pilgrims, as you read chapter 35, uh, are wandering through a desert, summoned to fortitude amidst a long and difficult journey, and they watch as God saves them and his power renews and transforms them and the creation, ushering them Into Zion. I mean, that's that's the scene that unfolds in chapter 35. It's a new exodus for the people of God that rises out of the divine devastation in chapter 34. In 34, we saw a fruitful and inhabited land turn into a wilderness. In chapter 35, we watched the wilderness turn into a fruitful and inhabited land that's even greater than it was at the original at the beginning, but it's almost like the new Eden. Look at verses one and two of chapter 35. The wilderness and the desert will be glad and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and a shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. The wilderness and the desert I don't know why it's not translated this way in the NAS. We'll be glad, it should say, for them. There's an there's a indirect object there at the end. The wilderness and the desert will be glad for them. Who's them? There, it is the connection that ties it back to chapter 34. It is those who pass through the wilderness will be those who will be welcomed by this new creation. The scene described here is of sin's curse Reverse; It is undone. The creation itself is personified here. So that's, again, that prophetic imagery. And we see the creation welcoming God's people, rejoicing in the consummation of God's kingdom program. I think this is what Paul is talking to, uh, talking about and alluding to in Romans 8, verse 19, when he says that the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Isaiah describes the physical creation, he gives it a human-like uh, responses. It is glad, it rejoices, it shouts for joy. When divine devastation has run its course, the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption, and you and I, as believers, will behold not just a renewed creation, but in and through that re- renewed creation, we will see what? Look at verse 2. The majesty excuse me, the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. When sin is done away, we will truly and perfectly perceive, as Psalm 19 verse 1 says, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. We we will see that with unveiled sight. You can almost think of chapter 35 like a brochure for some vacation destination. You look at marketing materials for some exotic, you know, tropical paradise, some five-star hotel uh, resort on the ocean. It just, it draws you in, right? If you like that thing. I like that thing. You, you, You can't wait to get there. You can't wait to set your eyes on it and to feel the breeze on your face to get your toes in the sand. You can't, And you can get up and you can work yourself to the bone every day knowing that that is what is awaiting you at your destination. And that's what these snapshots of the new creation are meant to do for us when we read them. It's what it was meant to do for Isaiah's hearers as he preached and wrote. They are previews of coming blessings. There's unspeakable glory that awaits us at the end of this pilgrim wandering. And so Isaiah says in verse 3, encourage the exhausted, literally the, the slack hands, and strengthen the feeble, literally the tottering knees or the weak knees. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. When hope fades, when longings go unfulfilled, we need encouragement. I need encouragement. You need encouragement. When anxiety creeps in and fears grip our hearts, we need to be reminded, take courage, fear not. That's why the writer of Hebrews says that we are to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more, what? As you see the day drawing near. What day? This day. The day of God's judgment and God's restoration of all things. One of the reasons that we come together every Lord's Day, every week, is to constantly remind one another that our God is coming. It's why we read the scriptures. It's why we sing the scriptures. It's why we preach and study the word of God together. It's why we have equipping hour. It's why we teach the children. It's why we send out resources for you to look at throughout the week and through our mailing list. It's why we speak to one another, encourage one another. Christ is coming to judge. Christ is coming to judge the wicked and he's coming to save those who have placed their hope in him. And we need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of that every week, day by day. That's why the New Testament calls our, our, our Christian lives now. He describes us as aliens Peter says we're strangers and exiles. This is not our home. The way this world is now is not our final home. And when our God comes in saving power, that will be evidenced with a wholesale transformation of the natural order, which he describes for us in verses five to seven. And it's emphatic then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool, the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass will becomes reeds and rushes. The world will become a new Eden. With all the physical consequences of sin, infirmities, blindness, deafness, crippling diseases, death, the, all of that is done away. The barren wilderness, the barren wilderness, that dry and parched and uninhabitable land will be completely transformed. It's interesting. Jesus himself quotes Isaiah's words here when John the Baptist was in prison. Do you remember? John with Baptists is in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus and his disciples to ask, he says, are you the Messiah or should we look for another one? And our Lord quotes these verses in Matthew 11. You can read about the parallel account in Luke 7 to reassure John. He says, look, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. He says, the, gospel, the poor have the gospel preached to him, alluding to Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus' miracles pointed to his messiahship and the breaking into time of his kingdom. And John needed encouragement. I mean, he was broken in prison and he needed his hands steadied. He needed his knees supported. And what does he do? He points them here. Jesus does. Those miracles by our Lord were, just a f- were not the exhaustion. He was wasn't exhausting the prophetic fulfillment. Those were just a foretaste, a foreshadowing of the even greater changes that will take place when God's kingdom program is brought to completion in the future. The, 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 the purpose of these verses is both uh, prophetic in terms of looking ahead to Christ and his ministry and looking to the final end in which God's kingdom is established, the new heavens, even the new earth. You come to verses 8 to 10, the Exodus imagery starts to really pop and stand out. It's really kind of the apex of this um, Exodus allusion in verse eight he says, And a highway will be there in this future day, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it, no lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there, and the ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow. And sighing will flee away. As God's people travel their wilderness path of faith, Isaiah describes our arrival at our destination. And he describes it taking place along a a metaphorical highway. There are three features of this highway I just want to point out real quickly. First, it is a highway of holiness, so called because it leads to the Holy One of Israel. That's the first thing we need to understand. And also because the redeemed and the ransomed, those who have been set free from their sin debt on account of Messiah's atoning work, they are the ones who walk there. The unclean, the unsaved will not. Indeed, they cannot walk on it, only those who have been cleansed and now walk the path of holiness by faith. They are the ones who travel on it. Second, this path is one of security. In verse 9, He says, no line will be there, no vicious beasts, no fools, verse 8, the end of verse 8, wandering around on it. Highways in an ancient world were not safe. They were not easy to travel on. There were robbers. There was exposure just in the desert, wild animals. It wasn't fun or easy to travel on a roadway. Again, you have to understand the context in which these words are spoken. We think of a highway, we think of interstate. That's not what it was like. It wasn't easy, but God's people here are traveling on level ground without fear of any external threats that might prevent them or us from reaching the final destination. That's that's the picture. So it's one of security. And lastly, it is a highway of holiness. It is one of security. Lastly, the path is one of joy. Sorrow and sighing disappear. Singing and joy take their place. I love the last few miles of a really long road trip, right? You get to exit the car. It's just around the corner. You get to exit the car, right? You, there's, um, you get to stretch your legs. You get all kinds of anticipation of who you're going to see, what you're going to see, what's gonna, what you're going to do. All the weariness of travel evaporates. That's the picture here. The last couple of miles on level ground, with expectation and joy and happiness. And what we see here is hope becoming reality. We see faith becoming sight. The people of the Lord and the joy of the Lord finally link up. This is the happy future that awaits God's people as the Redeemer brings his redeemed into his glorious presence forever and ever. That's that's the scene. There's an old hymn written by a Baptist minister in the 1700s, 1770s. I guess that's by. It's not a well-known hymn, but uh, it's called, I Know That My Redeemer Lives. It's a it's a drawing off of a Job 19 and verse 25. And um, it's alluding to this in some ways. But because our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, lives, we have every reason to trust him. Every reason to bank our eternal destiny in him. Letting that faith permeate every aspect of our lives. We have a living faith. To follow Christ is to have a living faith. Listen to the verses, some of the verses of this hymn. I know that my Redeemer lives. What comfort this sweet sentence gives. He lives, he lives who once was dead. He lives my everlasting head. He lives to bless me with his love. He lives to plead for me above. He lives my hungry soul to feed. He lives to help in time of need. He lives to silence all my fears. He lives to wipe away my tears. He lives to calm my troubled heart. He lives all blessings to impart. He lives and grants me daily breath. He lives and I shall conquer death. He lives my mansion to prepare. He lives to bring me safely there. And the final verse says, He lives all glory to his name. He lives my Jesus still the same. Oh, the sweet joy this sentence gives. I know that my Redeemer lives. If you're in Christ this morning, take heart. Take heart. Our Redeemer lives and will bring his people home. Our Redeemer lives. Not, and he, he's going to bring us home, not limping and weary, but triumphant and trusting. Crowned, verse 10 says, with unending joy and gladness. So strengthen those weak hands, right? Steady those shaking knees. Take courage and fear not, he will save you. And if you're not in Christ this morning, or if you're not sure if you're in Christ, the bad news is there is a day of vengeance coming. And it will be complete, and it will spare no one. But the good news is that if you have life and breath, there is still time for you to cling to Christ. There is still time for you to throw yourself on his mercy, to look to Jesus in humble, childlike faith, to trust him, to have your sin washed away. You can clothe yourself, not with your own righteousness, which will leave you lacking in that final day, but you can clothe yourself with the Redeemer's perfect righteousness. And you can join this throng of pilgrims walking the path of faith through the wilderness. Yes, strangers, exiles, absolutely. But, um, but it's a path that leads to glory. The Lord Jesus came in weakness to die upon a cross for the salvation of his redeemed. And he will most certainly come again and bring each one of us to glory. And so we are, asked, uh, we are left with the final question which the text asks asks of us, what do you want your internal inheritance to be? Is it divine devastation or is it redeemed rejoicing? These are the choices that are before us. I pray you will choose to join the everlasting throng described here in Zion's happy future. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your uh, prophetic word uh, given by the prophet Isaiah recorded for us and handed down to us through the ages faithfully. We thank you for the reminders that these um, somewhat obscure passages of scripture, these are passages that we don't study a lot, sometimes we we never really get to them in our Bible reading, and yet they carry, they carry with them such incredible and eternal truths that we need to be confronted with, that we need to be comforted by. I pray, Lord, that if there's any in our midst this morning who are not sure that they are among the redeemed, that they would cling to Christ today, that they would turn and follow you before the opportunity to do so slips away. No man knows the day or the hour. Lord, you can come back. Help us to be alert. Help us to be watchful. Help us to have our hands on the plow when that day comes. And Lord, help us who know you to walk that pilgrim path. Help us to do it with faith, with eyes, on the prize. Help us to run to win. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at Cascades com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.